Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. If we were to, to put together, how many songs do we have that are focused on the Father? How many songs are focused on the Son? And how many songs are focused on the Spirit? What the disparity would be between those? When I went to seminary, I had a professor who wrote a book called Christ-Centered Preaching, which is great. Um, but he, he was challenged by one of our, actually, he was politely, gent- gently, another professor said, are we so Christ-centered that we're neglecting the other members of the Trinity. And so that was convicting to me at that time, and it's still convicting for me today. And what's so interesting, as we look at today's passage, this is, this is exactly what the apostles are wrestling with. They are focused on Jesus, which is, which is good, which is great. But at the exclusion of the Father and the Spirit, Jesus has been telling them, listen, I'm going to heaven, where the Father's house, where, where, where I'm going to prepare a place for you. And he's told them, I'm going to send the Spirit to help you in your witness. And yet they still seem so focused on Jesus at the exclusion of the Father and the Spirit that they're overcome with worry and grief and trying to talk Jesus out of his plan of going to the cross. And so you can imagine how alarming it was for them when Jesus comes to them and he says, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage, to your advantage, that I go away. For if I do not go away, the the helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. If you would, please open up to John chapter 16. Uh, If you do not have a Bible, there should be a red Bible in the seat in front of you. And it's page six, excuse me, page 902 in the red Bible. Uh, Today, we're continuing the final hours of Jesus's life and teaching. And as you can imagine, if you knew that your words were your final words, there would be no wasted words. And so Jesus isn't talking about sports or the weather, but the things that are most important to him that he wants to pass on to the apostles. And so Jesus has told them again that he's going away, that he's going to the Father's house to prepare them a room, that they will be his witnesses and they will be persecuted. And so I'm assuming they're pretty shell-shocked by all this. And so Jesus comes to remind them of the grace and ministry of the Holy Spirit in order to encourage them in their faith. So let's let's look at John chapter 16, verse 5 through 15. John 16, verse 5. Jesus says to his apostles, But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. 
And when he, the Holy Spirit, comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we come to you this morning to worship you, to fellowship with you, to know you, because you are God. Forgive us, Lord, for the ways that you become the forgotten God in our life. The ways that we have grown anxious because we forget about your presence. The way that we feel overwhelmed because we forget about your provision. Help us today, Lord. Help us, Holy Spirit, to know you more and to make you known. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. My goal this morning is very simple. It's simply that we would get a better understanding and appreciation of the Holy Spirit. And through that, that we would grow in our love and our dependence and worship of the Holy Spirit. I think that's a lot of what Jesus is trying to accomplish today. And so in today's passage, what we'll see is that Jesus shares three things about the ministry of the Holy Spirit with his apostles. He tells them that the Holy Spirit replaces that the Holy Spirit convicts, and that the Holy Spirit speaks. And so those are the three things we're going to look at today. First, the Holy Spirit replaces. Look at verse 5 with me. Jesus says, but now I'm going to him who sent me. I'm going away, right? And none of you ask me, where are you going? Let's pause there just for a second. This statement by Jesus might seem confusing to us at first because we may recall when apostles asked Jesus where he was going. But what we see as we look deeper into it is what we notice is, is they're not really asking Jesus about, about heaven, about the Father's house. Back, in, back in, in John 13, Peter does ask Jesus, where are you going? But he's talking about the cross. And Jesus says, where I'm going, you cannot follow me, talking about the cross, but you will follow after, meaning his own crucifixion. So in that, in that passage, Peter's not really asking about heaven. And then in John 14, um, Thomas, after Jesus talks about the Father's house and about heaven and is trying to share with them about the good news of heaven, Thomas just said, we don't know where you're going. So he just says, as a matter of fact, we don't know anything about it. And then he asks, how can we know the way? And so up to this point, really, the, 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 the apostles are just so focused on Jesus that they have more or less not really thought much about heaven or about the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus comes today to encourage them with the good news of heaven and of the Holy Spirit. But because they have been so distracted from heaven and from the Holy Spirit, we see in verse 6, Jesus says, But because I have said these things to you about his departure, about their persecution, 
And because they have forgot about heaven, he says, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Put on your imagination caps for a while, if that's the thing. I know we talk about thinking caps, but imagination caps. Imagine, imagine if you had a time machine, okay, like a DeLorean, like back to the future. And you could hop into it, and you could go back to any point in time, and you could go back, and you could witness the miracles of Jesus. How amazing would that be to be in the room where Jesus says to the paralytic, pick up your mat and walk. Uh, how amazing would it be to be on the boat and see Jesus tell the storm, be still, and it stops, right? How, how, how life-giving would it be to, to be there and to see the resurrection of Jesus? I mean, that would be amazing, wouldn't it? It would be so life-giving and so spiritually encouraging. And yet what Jesus says here is that it is actually to our advantage that he goes away, that, that, that these Earthly miracles are no longer seen by us, that he goes away and sends the Holy Spirit. Now, to be honest with you, when I read this at first, it seems a little bit patronizing. Kind of like a father that decides he's going to abandon his children to, to go pursue a sinful lifestyle and sits down with them and says, you know what, it's better for you that I go away. It almost seems wrong that Jesus would say this. And so, so why is it, why is it that Jesus can say, it's to your advantage, it's to your advantage that I go away and the Holy Spirit comes and replaces me here on earth. Well, there are two reasons that I want, I want to point out to you. And we'll expand on them on the following verses. But, but the first reason it is to our advantage that the Holy Spirit replaces Jesus on earth is because Jesus was God in the flesh, which means he was constrained to a geography. Jesus had a short three-year ministry in a small little section of the world. For example, at 3 p.m. on May 18th in the year 22 AD, I have no idea where Jesus was, but I can tell you he was not in Green Bay, Wisconsin. Because Jesus was in bodily form, so he was actually somewhere. It is to our advantage that the Holy Spirit replaces Jesus ministry on earth because the Holy Spirit globalizes salvation. The Holy Spirit that does not have a body like man is not restrained by geography. And so the Holy Spirit is at work in your home. The Holy Spirit is at work in your workplace. The Holy Spirit is work in the schools. The Holy Spirit is at work in the church. The Holy Spirit is at work in Green Bay. The Holy Spirit is at work in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit is work in Costa Rica. The Holy Spirit is at work everywhere because it is not constrained to an earthly body. The Holy Spirit replacing Jesus' earthly ministries to our advantage because it globalizes the kingdom of God, the redemption of God, and the salvation of God. You know, I remember when I was a kid, I used to go to Kmart with my mom. Uh, for you young kids, Kmart is kind of like Walmart or Target, but dirtier and more out of date, okay? And that's probably why they went out of business. But I remember going to Kmart with my, with my mom. Jonathan, I'm wondering if you've ever been to that same Kmart. We grew up like three miles away from each other. But I remember going to Kmart with my mom, and, uh, and there would be this woman that would push around this square cart. It was like three feet by three feet, and there would be a pole coming out of it. And on top of the pole, there would be this blue light. Um, do any of you remember this? 
A little bit? Okay. You do remember. All right. And, and they would, they would, this woman would push uh, the cart around, and she would set up shots somewhere, and she would turn on the blue light, and they would have this blue light special, right? And everyone that could see the blue light were like, you know, moss to a flame. Oh, and they would come, and they'd find out what the special was, okay? But here was the problem is that not everybody in the store could see this blue light. So what would happen is this omnipresent voice would come over the intercom and say, Dear Kmart shoppers, we are now having a blue light special in women's wear. And then you see like all of these women turn their carts around and head towards the blue light. You see, that woman was able to offer these great savings, but her, her scope was limited. She needed this other voice to speak to the uttermost ends of the store, right? To draw people in. This is why it is to our advantage. Jesus ministered in a very defined geography. He was the light of the world. But the Holy Spirit could globalize the ministry of Jesus, which is awesome for us because we live at the uttermost ends of the world. So the first advantage that the Holy Spirit replaces Jesus is that the Holy Spirit globalizes the redemption of God. The second reason is to our advantage that the Holy Spirit replaces Jesus. And I'm going to say this slowly and twice because I want to make sure you grasp it. But it's because while Jesus came to accomplish salvation for us, the Holy Spirit came in order to apply salvation to us. Let me say it again. Jesus came to accomplish salvation for us, but the Holy Spirit came to accomplish to, excuse me, to apply salvation to us. See, Jesus accomplished salvation in many ways. Jesus came, was born of a man. He lived a sinless, perfect, holy life like we should, perfectly righteous. And then at the cross, there was a great exchange where, where he, gave, he gave us his righteousness and he took on our sin. Jesus accomplished our salvation by dying the death that we deserved. Jesus accomplished salvation by raising from the dead to give us newness of life. Jesus accomplished our salvation by ascending into heaven and preparing a place for us in our Father's house. And so Jesus has accomplished all of this salvation. But to be honest with you, it's all for nothing unless the Holy Spirit comes to apply that salvation to us. Let me give you an example um, back in 1977, smallpox was eradicated. So we don't talk about smallpox anymore. But before that eradication in 1977, it was, it was epidemic. One statistic I saw said over 30 million people died just in the 20th century alone of smallpox. And the reason why smallpox was eradicated was because of the accomplishment of one man named Edward Jenner who, dis who made some discoveries and then created a vaccine against smallpox. Now, here's the thing is that the vaccine was a great accomplishment. The vaccine was wonderful. It was effective. It was powerful. It was life-changing. It, it changed the world. It saved millions of people's lives. But that vaccine is no good at all unless it was applied to the people by doctors. Friends, we have a deadly disease called sin. Jesus has accomplished salvation for us, a wonderful, powerful, effective salvation that can save us from our sins. 
But it is of no good unless the Holy Spirit comes and applies that salvation to you personally. And so why is it to our advantage that the Holy Spirit replaced Jesus? First off, because the Holy Spirit globalizes salvation. And secondly, because while Jesus accomplished salvation for us, the Holy Spirit applies it to us. And that takes us to our next point. How does the Holy Spirit apply salvation to us? And, and Jesus shares with us one way that, that the Holy Spirit does this in our lives. And I think, I think any of you who trust in Christ can say, yeah, I could, I could see this as part of my story. Let's, let's see, verse 7, the Holy Spirit convicts. Verse 7 says again, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go away, I will send him to you. And when he, the Holy Spirit, comes, he will convict the world. This term convict has the sense of exposing someone's guilt, of displaying they're wrongdoing and, and showing really that they're justly deserving of punishment. In, in this context, what, what Jesus is talking about is really the courtroom of our heart. That the Holy Spirit comes and it shows how guilty we are. Right? Sometimes we feel guilty because we are guilty. That's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit shows us our guilt. Doesn't show it to God. God already knows our guilt, the Father. But it shows that the guilt the guilt to us, to our hearts. And this is part of the Holy Spirit applying salvation to us, is revealing to us our guiltiness. Now, how does the Holy Spirit do it? Well, fortunately, Jesus gives us a three-point sermon to teach us how the Holy Spirit does this. Verse 8 again, he says, And when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world. First, concerning sin. Second, righteousness. And third, judgment. And then Jesus expands on all three of these. First, the first one, verse 9, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Secondly, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. And third, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So let's quickly look into these three ways that the Holy Spirit convicts us of our guilt. First, concerning sin, in verse 9, he says, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. It's interesting that when Jesus says sin, he points specifically to believing in him. And we actually have covered this a few weeks ago, if you remember, that we learned that, that the reason why Jesus really summarizes sin and the rejection of him is because the crowning sin, the sin of all sins, is really a rejection of Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And so this means that the biggest sin in your life is not your, your issue with coveting or your issue with lust or your issue with lying. Those are not your biggest issues in life. Your biggest issue is your rejection of Jesus, your failure to believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior over all of these areas of your life. We see this in Acts chapter 2. When the Spirit comes at Pentecost, Peter starts preaching. And Peter says this, he says, Let all the households of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you, whom you crucified, which is so interesting because no one in that crowd probably had the hammer in their hand. And yet he says, you crucified him. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. You may know that Jesus died for sin in general. But do you know Jesus died because of your sin? 
that your sin nailed Christ to the cross, that it put him to death. As a result of this, we see that they were, they were cut to the heart. This is the work of the Spirit. The Spirit shows us our guilt, shows us our sin, but this is a gift of grace. This is not to allow us to, this is not to keep us in our guilt, but it's to point us to Christ. And that's what we see happens here. As the verse continues, we read, And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. The Spirit, by the grace of God, convicts us of our guilt so that we will turn from ourselves Repent to God, trust in Christ, and experience his forgiveness. And so the Holy Spirit convicts us concerning sin. Secondly, the Holy Spirit convicts us concerning righteousness. Verse 10 again, Jesus says, Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Why is it that the Jesus has to, I'm sorry, that the Holy Spirit has to take over this, this ministry of Jesus of convicting the world of righteousness. Well, you see, all of us, all of us measure our righteousness to some degree or another. We all have a measuring stick of righteousness. Typically, we measure it against other people. Are we better than other people or worse than other people? And a lot of times what we do is we choose like the most rotten people we know and say, I want to measure myself against that person. And so we measure ourselves against them and say, you know what, I'm a pretty righteous person. But here's the thing, when Jesus comes to earth, he gives a completely new measuring stick for righteousness, one that was so <laughs> reaches up to heaven that everyone who's around him understands how unrighteous they are. This happens both by the way that he lives, but also his teachings. I mean, if you take the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount is a picture of the righteousness of God, the righteousness that God requires from us. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, You have heard that it was said, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. I'm sure the crowd said, yes, amen. You know, put those murderers in jail. But then Jesus continues and he says, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Wow. No amens after that. Everybody knows I'm guilty, and Jesus just said I'm liable to the hell of fire. Sermon on the Mount continues. He says, you have heard it said you shall not commit adultery. Amen. Throw those home wreckers in jail, right? Cast them out. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. No amens. Because everybody knows they are guilty. You see, by his righteous living and by his teaching on righteousness, Jesus was giving the world a new measuring stick of righteousness. God's measurement of righteousness. A measuring stick infinitely larger than anything anyone had imagined and left every person woefully short. And that's why we read in the scripture, there is no one righteous no, not one, including you. <laughs> it's kind of like this. I, um, when I go to be around Trisha's family, I, um, I feel like a giant. They're all like five foot ten and shorter. 
and I'm six foot one, and so I'll go there, and I'm always, like, they're, they're this to me, um, and so I feel really tall. It's actually, we laugh about this a lot. If you ever look at a family picture of her family and me, I look like a giant, and so we'll just look at that and just, wow. I, but, but what happens is when I go to the YMCA, and there's a six foot eight guy that comes to play basketball, all of a sudden I feel very small, because my measuring stick of, of tallness just changed, Right? Imagine it this way. Imagine you're walking down, you know, the streets of Chicago. I've shared this illustration before, but I think it's so helpful. You're walking down streets of Chicago, and you're around normal height people, and then you come across someone who's like seven feet tall, and you think, man, they're tall, right? But imagine if you were at the top of the, the Sears Tower or whatever it's called, whoever bought it out. I don't, I don't know what it's called now. What's the name of it? Willis, Willis Tower? Stick Sears. Sears? All right, we'll stick with Sears. Uh, even though, anyway, sorry. Uh, so say you're st- at the top of the Willis Tower and you're looking down. It doesn't matter if they're three feet tall, seven feet tall, or 10 feet tall. They all look like ants, right? This is the measuring stick of God's righteousness. When God looks down from heaven to see the measure of our righteousness, it doesn't matter if you're three feet righteous, five feet righteous, or 10 feet righteous. You're ants compared to the righteousness of God. And when Jesus comes and lives a righteous life, and teaches about the righteousness of heaven, everyone stands condemned. They know their unrighteousness. And so when Jesus leaves the example of righteousness, he sends his Holy Spirit to convict us of the righteousness of God, not from without, but from within, to remind us of our unrighteousness so that we might look to the righteousness of another for our salvation. And so the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin, of rejecting Jesus, the Holy Spirit convicts us of our unrighteousness by showing us the righteousness of God. And finally, the Holy Spirit convicts us concerning judgment. Verse 11, again, Jesus says, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. You know, we may hear these words of Jesus and say, you know, I know I'm not perfectly righteous, but nobody's perfect. But you know, why would God bring judgment on anyone? Like if God is loving, why would he... Why would he judge anyone? And what Jesus tells us here is that we know God is a God of justice and judgment because he has brought judgment upon the ruler of this world, which is Satan. And we know that he's brought judgment on the ruler of this world because after Christ died, he rose again victorious over Satan. And so just as imminent as Satan's judgment is, so is all who do not trust in Christ for their salvation. You know, we may ask, how can a loving God bring judgment? But really, the biblical question is, how can a loving God not bring judgment? You see, the reason why we don't want God to bring judgment is because we know we're guilty. If we love justice like God loved justice, we would know that God would need to bring judgment. Let me give you an example. You know, at my house, if one kid slaps another kid for no reason, the, 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 the slappy will come crying to me, okay? And if I, if I don't give any justice to the slapper, they cry bloody murder, right? Like, oh, what's going on? Why are you not punishing them? They just slapped me, right? But the, slap, the slapper feels like, oh, man, this is, this is pretty nice. You see, we're, we're the slapper, and so we don't want judgment. We don't want God's justice. But those who love justice know that God must bring judgment. Friends, do you know that you deserve the judgment of God? Do you consider yourself a small sinner that just deserves like a slap on the wrist? 
If you are at that spot, you have never experienced the Holy Spirit. And you are a dead man walking, Jesus says. You are sitting on death road, destined for the fire of hell. And I don't say that because I hate you. I say it because I love you. I mean, I could lie to you. What good would that do for you? If you consider yourself a small sinner, that's, that's what you're destined for. You see, according to the world, small sinners go to heaven, big sinners go to hell. Jesus flips that. He says, if you think you're a small sinner, then you're depending on your own righteousness. And if you depend on your own righteousness, your destiny is hell. But if you know you are a big sinner, that is by the grace of God, the Holy Spirit, so you look not to your own righteousness, but to the righteousness of Christ on your behalf. We come before a holy God, convicted by the Holy Spirit of our guilt, trembling at the justice we deserve, but rejoicing in the salvation that God has given to us in Christ. Let me skip ahead. Main point three. So he said the Holy Spirit replaces, the Holy Spirit convicts. Finally, the Holy Spirit speaks. These verses here are, are focused on the apostles specifically. Verse 12, Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Jesus has been speaking to them for three years. But, but for some reason, there's a teaching that they can't bear, probably because they're, they're shell-shocked, probably because they're pretty you know, focused on what their agenda is and it's not the same as God's, probably because they don't have the Holy Spirit to really grasp the things that Jesus wants to teach them. Verse 13 continues, says, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, just as Jesus did not speak on his own authority, but that of the Father. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Things to come like the second coming of Christ, the new heavens, the new earth. Verse 14 he, the Holy Spirit, will glorify me. He will exalt Christ as Savior. For he will take what is mine, the word of Christ, and declare it to you. And, the, and that all that the Father has is mine, the gospel of God, the truth of God. Therefore, I said that he, the Holy Spirit, will take what is mine and declare it to you. Jesus is repeating something he said earlier to the apostles in John 14 where he said that he will send the Holy Spirit helper to remind them of all the things that he has taught them. And the reason why Jesus is doing this is because the apostles are the ones who are going to be commissioned to write the New Testament. To write the word of God down that, that generations that follow could read the word of God and enjoy the word of God. And so the Holy Spirit speaks through the apostles to write down the word of God. And the Holy Spirit speaks through the word of God to his disciples today. That's why in 2 Timothy 3.16 it says all scripture is breathed out. That's reference to the Holy Spirit. is breathed out by God. In 1 Thessalonians, it says, we thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. 2 Peter 1, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What a beautiful picture, isn't it? That as 
The apostles wrote the scriptures, the gospels, the New Testament. They were carried by the Holy Spirit to write down not the words of men, but the very word of God. Martin Luther, in his final sermon, said this of of scripture. He said, in times past, we would have run to the ends of the world if we have known of a place where we could hear, where we could have heard God speak. But now that we hear this every day in sermons, the scriptures that is, indeed now that all books are full of it, we do not see this happening. People aren't running after God's word because it's so prevalent, he says. You hear at home in your house, father and mother and children sing and speak of it. The preacher speaks of it in the parish church. You ought to lift up your hands and rejoice that we have been given the honor of hearing God speak to us through his word. You know, I think Luther's point is applicable today as well. The scripture is so common, you can get it on almost any electronic device, but that does not mean it's not the most valuable thing you own. Let me end with this. Um, Frank Barker is, is uh, the founder of Campus Outreach, a big, a big campus ministry, and he's one of the forefathers of our denomination, and he's just a huge spiritual leader in the 20th century. Frank shares his story that when he was growing up, he was, he was always kind of a God-fearing kid and God-fearing man. He was, he was religious, and so while he was in the Air Force, he decided that he wanted to go into vocational ministry. Well, he went to go talk to a chaplain about this, and he told the chaplain that he's just so anxious all the time. And the chaplain asked him, he said, why are you so anxious? And he said, he said, because I'm always trying to be a good enough Christian. I'm always trying to be a good enough Christian. And so the chaplain opened up the scriptures and showed, showed this man, showed Barker, that he was far worse than he had ever considered, that he was a much bigger sinner than he ever thought he was, and that Christ had come to take on his sin and to pay for it on the cross, and to give, give him his righteousness. Frank heard these words from the scriptures, the gospel, and the light bulb finally turned on. And he finally received the grace of salvation for the very first time. And he turned to the chaplain and he said, you know, chaplain, it's so strange because last year I was reading all these writings for Martin Luther. It just seems weird that he didn't mention this in all of his writings. And so the chaplain said to him, why don't you go back and read those writings again? And so he went back and he read these writings of Luther. And what he found is that the gospel was all over him. It was everywhere. It was all about Christ on the cross for our sin, saved by grace through faith in him alone. Let me ask, why is it? Why is it that, that Barker read these, these, these notes one year and did not see the gospel at all? And the next year he saw them everywhere. It's because Jesus went away. Because Jesus went away and sent the Holy Spirit to make redemption global, to apply it to Frank's heart, to show him his guilt, his need of a Savior, and to speak through the scriptures that Frank might know him. One final thought, and this is kind of, you may get this, you may not get this, that's okay, you may not know all the words, but this is just something that God's teaching me in this passage. Sometimes people label, label our denomination, our church as Calvinists, okay? Because of our emphasis on God's sovereignty, things like that. And, and it's okay. I mean, I prefer to be called Bibleist, to be honest with you. That's what I'd rather be called. Um, 
but they call us Calvinists because we, we have similar theolo- theology as this, as this reformer named John Calvin. But you know what John Calvin's nickname was? Or is, I should say? John Calvin's nickname is the theologian of the Holy Spirit. Friends, no one should be more enamored with the Holy Spirit than those that are convinced at the depravity of man. No one should be more enamored with the Holy Spirit than those that believe apart from the Holy Spirit we are completely dead, completely helpless, and completely damned to hell. No one should be more enamored by the Holy Spirit than those who know that the reason they are alive is completely because of the Holy Spirit and that the Holy Spirit transforms us and destines us for the Father's house. Love the Holy Spirit. Depend on the Holy Spirit. Worship the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is God and he has come and this is to our advantage. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your plan is so much better than ours. If it were up to us, we'd probably say, man, we wish Jesus was still here walking the earth. But you had better things for us. You knew that it was to our advantage that Christ would go into heaven and reign there and send the Holy Spirit to minister to us day in and day out. God, we just want to praise you. We want to praise you that you sent your spirit to indwell us, to save us, to apply redemption to us. And then it doesn't just happen when we first believe, but throughout our Christian life, you are faithful and we are so thankful, God. Lord, as we turn to your table, remind us, Lord, of the beauty of our salvation. That that salvation was accomplished by Christ and applied to us by the Spirit. Help us soak in that today. In Jesus' name, amen.